Welcome to the Practical Christian Podcast. I'm Travis Albritton, a former rocket scientist turned digital missionary, here to bring you the bite-sized tips and strategies you need to become an effective Christian. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's jump into it. Well, hey there, and welcome back to our four-part series studying out the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, if you have not yet listened to the episode that I published last week, where we did a brief overview of the cultural context of the book of Corinth, make sure you listen to that episode before you dive into this one. So the way this is going to work is I'm going to read a passage of scripture from 1 Corinthians and then dive into the William Barclay commentary to flesh out from a Bible scholar's perspective what is going on and then offer some practical takeaways for us to apply to our lives, all right? So the first section that we're going to be reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. So I will read the passage and then go through the commentary, and then we will discuss what it means for us. In verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now let's read what William Barclay has to say about this particular passage in 1 Corinthians. Paul begins the task of mending the situation which had arisen in the church at Corinth. He was writing from Ephesus. Christian slaves who belonged to the establishment of a lady called Chloe had had occasion to visit Corinth, and they had come back with a sorry tale of dissension and disunity. Yeah, that's definitely an understatement. Twice, Paul addresses the Corinthians as brothers. As Theodore Beza, the 16th century Calvinist commentator said, in that word too, there lies hidden an argument. By the very use of the word, Paul does two things. First, he softens the rebuke which is given, not in any threatening way, but as from one who has no other emotion than love. Second, it should have shown them how wrong their dissensions and divisions were. They were fellow Christians, and they should have lived in mutual love. In trying to bring them together, Paul uses two interesting phrases. He tells them to make up their differences. The phrase he uses is the regular one used of two hostile parties reaching agreement. He wishes them to be knit together a medical word used of knitting together bones that have been fractured or joining together a joint that has been dislocated. The disunion is unnatural and must be cured for the sake of the health and efficiency of the body of the church. Paul identifies four parties in the church at Corinth. They have not broken away from the church for the moment the divisions remain within it. The word he uses to describe them is schismata, which is the word for tears in a garment. The Corinthian church is in danger of becoming as unsightly as a torn garment. There were those who claimed to belong to Paul. No doubt this was mainly a Gentile party. Paul had always preached the gospel of Christian freedom and the end of the law. It is most likely that this party was attempting to turn liberty into license and was using their newfound Christianity as an excuse to do as they liked. The German theologian Rudolf Boltzmann has said that the Christian indicative always brings the Christian imperative. They had forgotten that the fact, the indicative of the good news, brought the obligation, the imperative of the Christian ethic. They had forgotten that they were saved not to be free to sin, but to be free not to sin. There was the party who claimed to belong to Apollos, the second party. 
There's a brief character sketch of Apollos in Acts 18, verse 24. Uh, He was a Jew from Alexandria, an eloquent man, and well-versed in the scriptures. Alexandria was the center of intellectual activity at the time, and it was there that scholars had made a science of allegorizing the scriptures and finding the most obscure meanings in the simplest passages. Here is an example of the kind of thing they did. The Epistle of Barnabas, an Alexandrian work, argues from a comparison of Genesis 14, 14, and chapter 18, verse 23, that Abraham had a household of 318 people whom he circumcised. The Greek for 18, the Greeks used letters as symbols for numbers, is iota followed by eta, which are the first two letters of the name Jesus. And the Greek for 300 is the letter tau, which is the shape of the cross. Therefore, this old incident is a foretelling of the crucifixion of Jesus on his cross. Alexandrian learning was full of that kind of thing. Furthermore, the Alexandrians were enthusiasts for literary graces. They were, in fact, the people who intellectualized Christianity. Those who claimed to belong to Apollos were, no doubt, the intellectuals who were fast-turning Christianity into a philosophy rather than a religion. There were those who claimed to belong to Cephas. Cephas is the Jewish form of Peter's name. These were most probably Jews, and they sought to teach that Christians must still observe the Jewish law. They were legalists who exalted law and by doing so belittled grace. There were those who claimed to belong to Christ. This may be one of two things. There was absolutely no punctuation in Greek manuscripts and no space whatever between the words. Yeah, so if you ever thought you could be a Bible scholar, remember that. Imagine reading a foreign language with no punctuation and no spaces, just a run of letters line after line. That's a Travis aside. Let's get back into the commentary. This statement may well not describe a party at all. It may be the comment of Paul himself. Perhaps you can say it like this. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas, but I belong to Christ. It may well be that this is Paul's own comment on the whole situation. If that is not so, and this does describe a party, they must have been a small and rigid sect who claimed that they were the only true Christians in Corinth. Their real fault was not in saying that they belonged to Christ, but in acting as if Christ belonged to them. It may well describe a little intolerant, self-righteous group. So those are the four parties, potentially four parties, identified here in the church in Corinth. And as we learn from this commentary, these weren't four different churches. These weren't four different groups of people that were loosely connected, but not really. These were all members of the same church that had created these very stark divisions within their fellowship. And if they didn't fix it, it was going to completely rot the core of the Christian church. And so what is the practical takeaway for us reading this particular passage, this situation in the church in Corinth, and what it means for us today? Well, it's a really sobering reminder that it is our natural, sinful tendency to create division and separation. That's actually what the world does best, the us versus them mentality. And if we're not really, really careful, it can seep into the church. We can divide over cultural lines. Sometimes those overlap with uh, racial differences as well. We're seeing a lot of those cultural differences bubble up to the surface here in the United States and a lot of our churches where things are being discussed that haven't been discussed sometimes ever. And there's a lot of uncomfortable conversations that need to be had. And sometimes people would just rather not talk about it and silo themselves off into a corner of the church fellowship where they don't have to 
uh, dig into those kind of things. We can allow political differences to creep their way into the church and create division. And even economic differences that you only hang out or spend time with people in a very similar economic situation that you are, whether that's below the poverty line, middle class, or even wealthy individuals. And it's just very important for us to recognize that this is our default setting, right? We're not going to default into spending all of our time and attention on people that are different than us, people where unity is difficult, right? Where it's difficult not just to love them, but to like them. But these divisions, these cliques, what I would call soft divisions, where you're not necessarily saying, you're not my brother in Christ, you're not my sister in Christ, but yet we worship in the same church, but where things go unspoken, where you aren't really pursuing unity in the way that God wants us to have unity within the church. We have to be very mindful and never think that we are above that level of, to be completely honest, selfishness right? It is easy and comfortable to not strive to be unified with people that have different perspectives than you, right? Look at the example from the church in Corinth. They had uh, Jews that had converted to Christianity. They had people that were straight out of the world, Gentiles converting into Christianity. And that is a major theme that runs through the New Testament. How do these very different groups get along together and, and function together as a whole, as a unit, as a family? You have groups within the church in Corinth that were uh, potentially, you know, more insulated and saying, hey, we're the only real Christians here. Uh, You guys aren't serious enough. You aren't good enough disciples or whatever it is. And we're the only real deal. And then you had others that were just purely intellectual in their pursuit of God without really putting any kind of meaning in their life behind it. It is so easy to fall into these, these different groups with our own natural tendencies and the way that we naturally want to interact with each other the way that we naturally pursue God. And this is something we have to actively fight against, this disunity, these divisions that Satan would love nothing more to rot the church out from the inside out. So how can you internalize this message of the warning of the danger of divisions within the church? Well, ask yourself a couple of questions. Number one, do you intentionally build relationships with people that are different than you? That is a really, really big deal. Are you actively pursuing other members of your church to build relationships, friendships with that are different than you, that look different than you, that have different upbringings, that have different backgrounds, different interests, right? So like for me, the most natural thing is to hang out with lots of people that watch football because I love watching football. But am I intentionally going out of my way to build relationships and spend time with people that don't enjoy watching football, where it requires more work on my part in order to make that relationship meaningful? All right. So ask yourself, do you intentionally do that? Do you intentionally build relationships with people, other Christians, other believers that are different than you? The second question you can ask yourself is, do you interact with people that have different perspectives and convictions? This is one that is a little trickier to self-diagnose, but next time you go to church, if you guys are meeting in person at church again, pay attention to who you naturally want to interact with, who you naturally want to fellowship with. Are they people that think very similar to you? Are they in the same stage of life as you? Do you have a lot of things in common? Or are they people that either culturally, politically, economically, spiritually are in a different place than you? And do you recognize your need and the importance of building bridges to other members of your congregation? 
And then the last question, and this is really the one I think that hits the hardest home, is do you love people that are hard to love? When you have somebody in your church that is difficult to love, that's difficult to serve, that's difficult to give your heart to, do you do it anyways? Right? Like that's the power of Jesus's challenge to us, right? What credit is, is it to you if you love people that love you back, that are easy to love? Even the pagans do that. But he says, go so far as even loving your enemies and praying for them. Now, I'm not saying that the people in your church are your enemies by any means, but it is a really important question to ask. Do I only love and give myself to people that I know are safe, that are easy to love, that are like me, that I feel comfortable with? Or do I consciously make an effort to put myself out there and to love people that are hard to love? So take some time, reflect on your own interactions within your church, on your own relationships and friendships, and ask God to give you insight if he indeed wants you to change something up, if he wants you to build a relationship with someone new, if you need to change your approach when you're in church, if you need to change your approach to reaching out to people that are outside of your small group, whatever it is. The big takeaway for us here in the 21st century is to be very mindful that divisions quietly creep into the church. And if they are not dealt with and addressed, and if we do not make a conscious effort to be unified with the whole church and not just the people that are like us, then we really are in danger of not being the church that God intended for us to be. That's it for today. Don't forget to take advantage of this week's free resource by clicking the link in the show notes. And be sure to share this episode with your ministry leader, a person in your small group, or just a friend from church. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and I'll talk to you soon.